Welcome to the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast, where we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy, plus you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so use your time effectively by listening, learning, and claiming credit. It's a new way to learn. Just log on to CEimpact.com for more information on podcasts. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. How you doing? I hope things are going well in your little neck of the woods as we kind of turn the corner to fall around here. We appreciate you listening as always. For those of you who are first-time listeners, welcome. Long-time listeners, uh, we welcome you as well. Please, wherever you get your podcast, give us a like, give us a subscription, and most importantly, head over to ceimpact.com where our producers are, and you can actually get CE and CME for just listening to my voice blather on for a while and uh, hopefully get some good information during these podcasts. And they also have lots of other great CE opportunities as well. So today we're going to jump right into it. This is a potentially charged uh, podcast, but it's one of those things where I feel like it's an important thing we need to do. We are going to talk about masks today. So even though I know that's not technically pharmacotherapy, I think it's something that is very important and something we do need to discuss. And the impetus for this, as many of you have probably seen or seen in your social media feed, is a very elegant paper, randomized controlled trial of complex. It took me three times to read it through before I really kind of figured like I got most of it. And even now, I'm not really sure I've got all of it, but a very elegant and complex randomized trial looking at the best way to look at masking and making sure people are properly masked uh, at the community level. And, and again, I suspect many of you have either heard of the paper, maybe read it yourself. So we'll kind of deep take a deep dive into this. To help me do so, I'd like to welcome Dr. Michael Hogue, who is Dean of the College of Pharmacy at Loma Linda University. So welcome, Dr. Hogue. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Appreciate I it. really appreciate having you here. This is a big topic, so I'm glad I have one more person to help me take a bite out of it to make it down to kind of bite-sized chunks and stuff like that. So I really appreciate your expertise on this. Again, you know, this has become a real politicized uh, topic, though, why I'm, I'm really kind of continually scratching my head about. If we offend listeners talking about this, I apologize. That's not my intention to do. I'm trying not trying to be political at all, but the bottom line is that masks work. We have solid evidence suggesting masks work, and I think to deny that is, is basically to deny science. And so, and this paper really put a fine point on that as we go along here. So this was a paper, and again, it is, is worth noting that it is in preprint, so it has not gone through peer review yet. So it's something to keep in mind, but it was a huge randomized study that was done in more than 340,000 people in 600 villages in Bangladesh. And it was done at the community level. So it was a clustered randomized controlled trial where they had villages and households that were either randomized to receive free cloth and surgical masks, as well as mask promotion strategies. And they actually had observers watch for people wearing masks properly. So they weren't wearing them on top of their head or over their arm or something like that. They were actually wearing them at uh, hotspots such as tea stalls and markets. And then what they try to do is basically look at people who develop coronavirus symptoms, and then symptomatic individuals were tested for, for SARS-CoV-2. So that's kind of a, a 30,000 foot look at it. It is interesting to note that before this paper came out, there's been some a lot of noise about mask use as, as far as all upper respiratory infections. It is true that a lot of community studies before the COVID pandemic had been kind of plus minus on the use of masks. 
though, uh, for influenza, there was actually solid studies suggesting that at least healthcare professionals wearing masks definitely decreased the risk of transmission of influenza. So then we get into the COVID nightmare that we're all living through. And, and it's worth noting that the, the issue about masks, which I think, again, became politicized very early on, unfortunately, has really stirred some serious emotions. And, and taking a step back and trying to take a look at the science surrounding it, I think a great paper to take a look at is the National Academy of Sciences review of using masks in the community setting as a public health policy to decrease the spread of, of COVID. And it's an excellent paper, and, and we can link the paper because it's for free in the show notes. And one of the things they point out is that people who I think probably don't have a very good background or much of a background in epidemiology or public health policy have continually decried the lack of randomized controlled trials in masks. And one of the things they point out is that in public health, doing randomized controlled trials is, is very challenging. There are ethical and logistical reasons why it is very, very difficult to pull randomized blinded controlled trials in the public health sphere. For example, where was the randomized controlled trial that showed that seatbelts worked? Did we randomize people to not wear seatbelts and some people to wear seatbelts and see who crashed? That probably be ethical to do, right? You know, um, the same with smoking in public places. Do we have randomized controlled trials where we looked at bars where people didn't smoke and did smoke to find if there was a benefit? Of course we didn't. And so I think it's disingenuous to say that we have to have randomized controlled trials that prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that masking works for COVID. And so I think that's kind of important to keep in mind. The National Academy of Sciences paper also points out the fact that quasi-experimental studies looking at mask wearing in the laboratory setting found very well that especially surgical masks were good at decreasing aerosol spread of COVID-19. And multiple studies suggested that. And then since the COVID-19 pandemic has started, we've also had several uh, retrospective studies that have suggested that in the community setting or in the school setting where masks are worn, the risk of transmission is decreased. So I think people who are against using masks to decrease the spread of COVID-19 have, have been up disingenuous about this demanding randomized control trials. And those who seem, tend to be against masks also seem to really like to point out studies that have looked at state-level data where they've said, well, you know, look at look at the states that have mask mandates versus those that don't. And there's no difference. You can't tell me that masks work. The only problem with that reasoning is that, it, to me, it's spurious because, A, in the United States, we don't really mandate masks masks with any sort of enforcement, right? I mean, when was the last time we heard anybody ever get fined or arrested or anything along those lines for persistently not wearing masks? It just doesn't happen. And one of the things that this paper, I think, does a pretty good job pointing out is that even though people may wear masks, and I suspect many of you out there have seen this, you know, people are wearing masks below their nose, you know, on their ear. They're wearing those ridiculous gator things that make you look like a character from Mortal Kombat. And and none of those things are, are probably the proper way to wear masks. And again, one of the things that was really nice about this study is not only did they give masks to people, both cloth and surgical masks, but they also had training of how to use them properly, where to use them, and then actually observe them if they were using them properly or not. And they had, they wanted to scale this so it could be done at a level where, you know, really any country, any any municipality could use this kind of process because it didn't cost a lot of money or time or resources. And again, Bangladesh being a prime example of that. So that's kind of, you know, kind of a background of where we are and, and what the study kind of shows. And so where are we with this study? Well, again, it is a large cluster randomized control trial. So again, trying to get the highest level of evidence that we can with this. And what they found was that it seemed to work. And so to kind of dive into all this, we're going to hear from Dr. Hogue and get his take on the study itself, 
on what he thinks the pros and cons are, and then what the implementation of it uh, should be as we move forward with the COVID pandemic, especially into the fall and winter, where I think many public health experts are, are concerned that things are going to get way worse before they get better. Again, talking about this uh, gigantic paper that came out, again, it is worth noting, has not been published yet in the peer review preprint stage, looking at mask wearing at the community level and a huge study done in Bangladesh. And again, to get his take and his expert opinion on this, again, I want to welcome Dr. Hogue. So again, thank you uh, for being on Game Changers, Dr. Hogue. Well, thanks for having me. So what's your take on all this? Again, the social media has gone bananas on this, and I'm not much of a social media guy just because it drives me insane. But you know, what do you think about the study? Could you give us kind of an overview of the study and kind of what you think the pros and cons are? Yeah, sure. So um, actually, this type of study is not new. It's a study design that we've actually seen in the U.S. Uh, conducted uh, for different interventions in the past. And I've, I'll give you a great example. But this particular study just took what we would call control-matched villages. So in other words, villages that were approximately of the same size within the same geographic region to try to limit confounding variables. And in some of the villages, half of the villages, they actually performed some educational interventions to talk to people at local community gatherings about masking and why masking is important, try to make the case for wearing masks, and then they also provided masks. Uh, the study indicates that, that they used two different kinds of masks that they distributed, paper masks and which we would call ear loop masks, I think in the U.S. is what we'd call those, and then also cloth masks, which is... Uh, what uh, we probably see most commonly in the community around the U.S. particularly. And so they looked at providing this intervention in about half of the groups. The other half, they didn't really do anything. They, they just did some counts and monitored the mask-wearing behaviors. It's observational in some ways because the study researchers actually went to uh, high-traffic common areas where people hang out. They went to mosques and to community centers and, as you mentioned, uh, tea shops and different places where people tend to uh, hang out, and they just did several counts of who's wearing masks, how many people are wearing masks and how many are not in the control group, and the which was the group that did not receive the intervention, as well as in the intervention group. And then they did something that was also very interesting. They tried to monitor, based on the community health data, the number of individuals who actually tested positive for COVID. And what they found was a little over a 9% reduction in COVID cases between those places where mask wearing occurred and the towns that were in the control where mask wearing didn't happen. And you may say that that's not a lot, but if you stop and think about that for just a minute, that is actually pretty significant because in a very highly populous country or an urban area where people are crammed in and packed together, you know, 10% is a pretty big number. 10% can be a large number, even if the percent doesn't sound like a lot. You're talking about a significant number of cases. The other thing that's very significant about this, Jeff, is it's occurred in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is a country that has not had very good access to the vaccine. And the vaccine is incredibly effective. I mean, we've got one of the most effective vaccines available on the market is the COVID vaccine. It is highly effective vaccine. But Bangladesh has not had routine and widespread access to the vaccine. So to me, why this study is really so significant is because we understand that stopping a pandemic that's caused by a respiratory virus actually requires multiple types of interventions in order to actually bring a pandemic to an end. Vaccination alone is excellent. Vaccination alone prevents it for those people who are vaccinated, prevents 90 to 95% of the illness. 
That's fantastic. But we need to be able to do more than that because vaccine does not become, unfortunately, equally available to all people at the same time. And so we've discovered that masking is another way to, to decrease respiratory illness. Now, the Bangladeshi study is not the first time anybody thought about masking. You mentioned this during your comments earlier that really we've known about masking being an effective measure for decreasing respiratory transmission of viruses and bacteria for decades. Joint Commission requires, absolutely requires that hospitals and health systems ensure that their personnel are masked. And they've been doing that for two decades, at least two decades. We've known we need to wear masks. So we've known that masks are effective at reducing the spread of respiratory diseases long before COVID ever came around. It was a logical thing. It's something that we've had to do in healthcare systems for many, many years. So why all of a sudden this is suddenly controversial that masks and masks really work? Well, we've been doing it for 20 or 30 years in hospitals. As a routine matter, the Joint Commission, no one has argued with the fact that masks were beneficial. I don't think anybody on this listening to this podcast would want your surgeon to stand over you <laughs> without a mask on. Exactly. Yeah. Why, why would we now suddenly question the benefits of masks when we've had no problem with it for the last 20 or 30 years in hospitals? That's a great point. And you're right. Yeah, I really wish so many pieces of, of the pandemic seemed to kind of descend into social media chaos and, and being my tribe versus your tribe and politicized stuff like that. And this is one of those things that, yeah, I mean, five years ago, nobody would have blinked at you, you know, looked at you sideways in a hospital for wearing a hospital during the influenza season. We all did, right? And certainly in the OR, you know, that, that was very common. So some people, some detractors of the study, and, and I want to get you kind of your take on it. Some have said, well, you know, as you pointed out, well, you know, 10% doesn't seem like much. And I agree with you entirely that no one is suggesting that masks are a magic shield that completely protect you from all respiratory viruses, but they're a key component in what goes on. The author of the study suggested, because there are some questions about, okay, well, we, we people wear seatbelts, right? Pretty good idea of how wearing seatbelts helps people prevents fatalities in motor vehicle crashes. And he points out that there's about one fatality for every 100 million vehicle miles traveled. If the average person drives about 10,000 miles a year, you know, that you can kind of do the calculations of, of how many people die, you know, every year in, in motor vehicle crashes. And we have a pretty good percentage of wearing seatbelts decreases that risk of fatality. He did kind of a back of the envelope calculation and found that 10,000 people would have to stop driving entirely to achieve the same impact of getting an infection as, as 600 people wearing masks. And so when you talk about, well, it's only 10%, you know, it's only 10%, but it's an intervention that is harmless. It, it doesn't affect, you know, anybody. There's no problem associated. It's a relatively cheap intervention. And when you take a look at that compared to wearing seatbelts, it certainly seems that we are, as a society, relatively comfortable with wearing seatbelts when we get in our cars. And no one seems to have big protests about that. Yet, if you have a significant number of people just stop driving to achieve kind of the similar impact of only 600 people wearing masks. And that was the author saying that in, in an interview. And I thought that was, that was quite interesting. I'd say it's interesting. In fact, I wish 10,000 people in Los Angeles would stop. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, yeah, being Loma Melinda, I'm probably pretty strange in 2020 when uh, you would go down the freeway and it's like, where is everybody? You know, I'm sure you know, I, I want to give your listeners another little anecdotal thing because Please. I think it relates to this as well. We've started back in face-to-face -face classes here at our university and our class cohorts are all together in the classroom. We're, our state does not require a social distancing minimum. 
inside a classroom. So we do require that our students are all masks. And interestingly enough, we also require that all of our students are vaccinated because they're healthcare professionals. And so we have a 100% vaccination rate, believe it or not. Congratulations. Our pharmacy students, and I'm very proud of that. But we actually, about three weeks ago, we had a student in one of our cohorts that actually became symptomatic with COVID symptoms and decided to get tested. And sure enough, the individual was a breakthrough case of COVID. The the vaccine wasn't able to protect her exactly from getting COVID. So we had this test positive case. And there was some mild symptoms apparently for a couple of days in a class a size of about 72 we were very worried because sure. this individual had some mild symptoms for two or three days. And of course, like most of us who've been vaccinated, thought that there's no way that could possibly be COVID because I've been vaccinated. And sometimes there are these breakthrough cases. So we were really worried. You got 72 uh, kids sitting in a classroom together, not socially distanced for multiple hours a day. We just knew we were going to have an outbreak. We decided to take a very conservative approach. And three days later, after this particular student was quarantined, three days later, we tested everybody. We tested every single student in that room that had interaction. We tested every faculty member that had taught in that room. We did not have one single positive case resultant from that breakthrough infection in a vaccinated person. And I personally believe, and this is anecdotal and there's confounding variables all over the floor, I honestly believe the reason we did not have an outbreak was because 100% of them were vaccinated and 100% of them were wearing masks at all times while they were indoor. Those two things together absolutely make a difference. And I think this Bangladesh study just reinforces that. I mean, I think it's just further evidence to show. But my own anecdotal experience with masking indoors, even among vaccinated people, is that it does work. The two things together give us an armor of protection that either one of them alone can't do, but you get the two together, you can get this incredible protection against COVID and our rates are just falling here in Southern California right now, while we've got other parts of the country that are seeing these tremendous rises going on in COVID rates in SoCal, they're falling. And I think it has to do with an improved vaccination rate and masking. I really do believe that's it. I'm sure you're right. Unfortunately, we're in Iowa, so I mean, we've we've unfortunately gotten kicked in the teeth, but we're not near as bad as the Deep South. We have gotten kicked in the teeth. My practice mostly internal medicine, critical care, and I can tell you that we are we're not overrun, but we are really really busy. And to a person, you know, I mean, I can only count on one hand the number of hospitalized patients I've seen who've been vaccinated. And you're right. I mean, because especially of Delta, the mask gives you that extra benefit. But as you point out, there's no one intervention, and we combine these interventions. You know, that's going to give you the benefit. Some other criticisms of the study I've read is, as you point out, you know, overall, there's about a, a 9 to 11% decreased risk in symptomatic COVID transmission, but then they broke it down by eight. And one of the things they found was, as probably not a big surprise, the uh, risk of symptomatic COVID was down around 30 to 35% in patients age 50 above and 60 above below that, there wasn't a significant difference. And again, I've, I've seen and heard detractors of the study saying, well, that means that we, we shouldn't mask kids. And I'm like, well, hold it a second. The study wasn't trying to prove that. The study has said that when the community masks, we decrease the risk of symptomatic COVID. And the people who benefit the most are the people who are the most vulnerable, the people who are most likely to get sick. So that's been something that hasn't made a whole lot of sense to me. Have you heard or seen any other criticisms of the study that you'd like to address or you think don't make a whole lot of sense? 
Yeah, well, a lot of people who look at this study would say that, uh, well, it's it's very observational in nature that uh, that you're observing people wearing masks and so forth, and are are they counting every person that's passing, and you know how reliable it is. If you have one person in one town that's counting and a different person in another town that's counting, are they counting the same way? Are they using the same standards and they're counting? I get all of that. I understand all of that piece, but they seem to have controlled for that pretty well in the study. I just mentioned, I think I mentioned earlier on that these types of studies where you're using a community, an entire community, and you're making an intervention happen, and then you're matching that community with another community that's similar in terms of population dynamics and statistics and so forth, and you're using population controls. This kind of public health study is not common in the U.S., but it does occur. I think one of the most prominent studies that was similarly designed to this actually occurred in the mid-1990s in West Virginia. The West Virginia University School of Pharmacy partnered with the uh, West Virginia Department of Public Health, and they actually did a similar observational control study looking at counties in West Virginia where pharmacists were advocating for patients to become immunized against the flu versus counties where pharmacists were not advocating for patients to be immunized against the flu. And they did exactly the same thing. Suresh Madhavan, who's now in North Texas, he did this study and and they went in and trained all the pharmacists in certain counties to be able to provide an educational intervention with their patients to advocate for them to go get flu shots at the county health department because at the time West Virginia pharmacists couldn't immunize. And then they matched those counties to similar counties that had similar populations, uh, similar pharmacies, They didn't do anything in those counties, didn't do any educational pharmacists or anything else. And they just monitored the flu vaccination rates in those communities case matched. And the counties where pharmacists were educating gave significantly more doses of flu vaccine during that season than the counties where pharmacists were not educating patients to do it. So this kind of study has been generally accepted. You know, this kind of public health control design study has been done many times before, and we've accepted it as legitimate research in the United States, this kind of study design is a validated metric for doing public health population level studies. It is a way to do it. Yes, there are confounding variables. You can't control for all of them, but that's why you enroll so many patients in the study. You enroll tens of thousands of patients in the study to be able to do the numbers on this in order to be able to get statistical significance. And I think when you're evaluating a study like this, that's what you have to understand. You have to understand your stats. You got to be able to understand that in order to get a, a statistically significant sample, you've got to enroll a high enough number to be able to generalize to the population. So I really, in this Bangladeshi study, I commend the authors for enrolling hundreds of thousands of people into the study or having that, that kind of a number, because that's really what you need to show validity. So to me, the stones that get thrown at this study about this kind of uh, case design not being typical or not being a valid case design are really bogus because it's a common way to do population-based or population health or public health studies. This is not an outmoded way of doing this kind of research. 
you're quite correct that are really not familiar with public health interventions and, and public health level evidence-based medicine have said, you know, wow, this is a really weird design. It's like, no, actually clustered randomized controlled trials are, are again, there's no way you're at a population level, you're going to get rid of all the confounding as you pointed out, but this is a good way to try and minimize that as much as possible. I think the last point I wanted to point out about this and criticism of the study has been, you know, again, this whole, well, it's only 10%. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that through big efforts and they increased mask wearing by only 29 percentage points compared to the control group. So 42% of people in the mask villages were wearing masks regularly compared to 13%. Think what that number could be if, if more than half of the people out there actually did wear masks. And so I think it's another piece to keep in mind is that almost certainly the effect size of this was underpowered because they did not get 100% mass compliance. They actually still got less than 50% mass compliance. And again, it points out that when people say, well, you know, well, we've had mass mandates in XYZ state for, for, for so long, here in a randomized control tr- uh, study where they educated people, I'm sure the people knew they were being watched, they still had less than half of people were wearing masks. What does that say in where we have, you know, mass mandates in states where, yeah, okay, we're going to have you wear masks. And if you walk into a store and you're not wearing masks, someone's going to ask you politely. And then if you refuse to wear a mask, they're going to ask you to leave. That's not exactly the same thing as compliance to mask wearing and certainly nothing about how to wear them effectively. So I agree with you, Dr. Ogat. From my perspective, yeah, this isn't a perfect study, but there is going to be almost no perfect study that does this. But I think it's one of the highest level of evidence that we do have that suggests that masks are an important tool that we can have to decrease spread of COVID-19. Since this paper was announced in last week's MMWR, in my world and in your world as, as college academicians, you know, there was a paper that that was done that looked at universities. This was done out of St. Louis University, where they looked at campuses that had high level of mask adherence indoors and those that didn't, and also found that schools, these were colleges that had high level of, of mask wearing, had significantly about 30 to 40% decreased risk transmission compared to those who didn't. So again, it's not a magic shield, but it, you know, this just adds to more and more of the data suggesting that masks are a beneficial tool. And given the fact that they're relatively inexpensive and have virtually no downsides or no side effects really becomes hard for me. And I'm not even really a public health expert to say why, you know, why isn't this more universally adopted? So any last words you have for about the study or anything? Yeah, I would just say uh, relative to that St. Louis study, I think in particular, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that as we each engage in local communities, we don't know most of the people we pass every day, right? So we, we shop at the grocery, we go to the mall, we run to a restaurant to get some food to eat, we go to different places and we're out in the community and we're socializing around. And regardless of whether you're vaccinated or you're not vaccinated, you just don't know what the vaccination status is of the people around you. If we had a 90 plus percent vaccination rate, you know, this whole masking conversation might be a very different conversation as to whether it's really necessary or it's not necessary. But the reality is right now is we're not there. We've got about 52, 53% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated. That's not a sufficient number uh, for us to be able to put our guard down with masking. And so, you know, wearing a mask is, you know, some people say, well, this is an infringement on my personal rights. And I hear that whole political conversation. I, I understand it. I do. I really am a person who supports personal liberties and freedoms and so forth. But I'm also a pragmatist in that I believe that we've got to bring this pandemic to an end. And it will require inconveniences for all of us in a short 
period of time in order to be able to bring the pandemic to an end and get back to a place where life can be normal as it was pre-pandemic. And so I just believe, you know, these mask studies and so forth that are done, they're all pointing to the evidence that there is benefit in wearing masks. Is it inconvenient? Yes. Is it comfortable? No. Do I like wearing a mask? Absolutely not. I'd much prefer not to wear a mask if I, if I did. But I have made the decision and the choice that I would rather bring the pandemic to an end. I'd rather protect my family. I'd rather protect my neighbors. I'd rather protect myself and wear a mask temporarily, have the inconvenience so that we can get to the end of this in a year or so and not have to wear masks. And that'd be a beautiful thing. So I think political, yes, it is political. I get that. But folks, it really doesn't have to be political. Public health and science is, uh, you know, science is not political. Science is science. The numbers are the numbers, the facts are the facts. And I think what we have to remember as pharmacists in particular, for those of us who are pharmacists listening to this, is that we've been taught to follow the science. So I just want to say to my colleagues, follow the science. It's really, really important. And social media is not science. Social media is something. I don't know what it is. It's not science. <laughs> It's something, but it's yeah, not, it's something. <laughs> it's not, it is not science. And right. you know, I like social media for sharing pictures of my family and that sort of thing and reading about, but, but reading about science on social media, really not a good practice. I don't think at Drake or at Loma Linda or at any other university we've ever trained our PharmD graduates to get their literature from LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter. I don't think we've ever taught that. And I think all of you listening to this know better. And so if that's where you're getting your science, shame on you. You should do better than that. We all know better. No, I agree. And, and you're right. I mean, certainly, I think 100 years from now, social scientists will probably look back on this and say that the social media probably had a pretty detrimental effect, I think, on what happened in the pandemic. It'll be interesting to see what history's judgment of all this is. Thank you again, Dr. Hogue. I really appreciate your time. I'm sure you're quite busy being a dean. And again, you guys are in the middle of, of your semester as we are here. Thank you so much for taking time to give us your take on things. And, and I really appreciate your expertise. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this week, guys. Thanks for again for listening to our show. As always, if you like us, please uh, hit that like button, uh, subscribe to us if you don't. And again, most importantly, head over to CE Impact and, and uh, sign up for very affordable CE. Just for again, listening to my voice and answering a few quick questions, you can get quite a bit of CE for the year and get that all taken care of. So we will see you next week. Remember, until then, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening in. Check out the CE for this podcast at ceimpact.com or download the Pharmacy Network app by searching CE Impact in your app store and join the Game Changers Podcast Academy. Happy learning!